landed at Area 51 and a half, where we talk about all things science fiction, fantasy, horror, and pop culture. I am your host, John Allen. With me is my co-host... Snyderman501, Nick Snyder. Nick, remind our aliens how they can get a hold of us. They can get a hold of us by going to the top of a mountain shouting for us. No, no. You can find us on Twitter at the area 51 h You can find us on Instagram at the area 51 h And you can find us on TikTok at the area 51 h And June being Pride Month, we are reminding all of our listeners out there that this is a safe landing pad for you. Aliens, Galians, all are welcome here. Speaking of Pride, Nick, we, we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, and I forgot to mention this sitcom from Britain, which was on, I want to say, maybe seven years ago or so. Uh, and it was it was great. It was called Vicious. Oh, And it's, okay. it starred Sir Ian McKellen and Sir Derek Jacobi. Right. And it was these two older, their words, queens, <laughs> that were living together. Uh, and they had been together forever. They'd been together since... Um, Britain declared that homosexuality was illegal and they couldn't be together. And this is kind of why Sir Derek Jacobi and Sir Ian McKellen wanted to do this sitcom, right? They wanted to work together. They wanted to uh, show how far things had come in their lifetime because they're both gay. And the premise is very simple. They're very, the reason it's called vicious is they're very bitchy with one another. And it's hilarious because what happens to them is that a young, handsome, straight guy moves into the building with them, and right. they befriend him. But, of course, they're just gushing over him, and they they snap at each other, and, and hilarity ensues. So they're bitchy towards each other. Yes. So one might say that they're vicious towards each other. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's, you know, that's why it's called vicious. On that note, Nick, it is time for the roundup. All right, John. So one of our favorite actors, one of our collectively favorite actors, Chris Hemsworth. Uh, he's doing the rounds for Thor right now. Well, Thor, Love and Thunder. I out. cannot wait to see that. I know, it's going to be awesome. I am avoiding all of the trailers. Right? Uh, I've I've done my best, but... Uh, anyway, he's come across and he said that he wants to be in the next Deadpool movie as Thor. Specifically so he can beat Hugh Jackman in most appearances as a Marvel character. And... His reason, reasoning aside for it, I still think it would be really, really cool to see him in Deadpool. I'd love to see him interact with Deadpool. I'm living for Thor. I'm living for Chris Hemsworth as Thor. I mean, I, that has been my favorite part of the MCU. I can't get enough of him. He's so good as Thor. I mean, Chris Hemsworth is just such a, a likable, charismatic guy, you know? Yeah, I mean, he's the best part of Ghostbusters Answer the Call. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And, um, and that's no shade on, on the ladies. I'm just saying, you know, he really made the comedic element of that sing. It's like the icing on top of the cake. As a bit of a sidebar, yeah, I agree with you. He really got a chance to show his comedic chops in that film. And it really worked out well. I loved it. Anyway, um, another thing that's happening. Uh, we're now six weeks off from House of the Dragon on HBO, the Game of Thrones spinoff. And man, the hype is barely there. <laughs> I've been looking at the buzz of this online and no one seems excited for this. And I got to sit there and go, yeah, I'm not really excited either because... I, nobody really seems to care about Game of Dragons or whatever the heck. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Game of Thrones was very... I mean, Game of Thrones was huge. There's no very about it. Was it. it was massive. massive. Yeah. The, the thing is, though, if they wanted to do a spinoff, 
And we're not going to talk about whether they need a spinoff or not. Like the, the simple fact of the matter is they've made the business decision to make a spinoff. And if they're going to do that, you do it, you strike while the iron's hot. You don't wait a couple years and wait for it to cool off. And honestly, Nick, I, I'm tired of the whole prequel thing. Yeah, so am I. So am I. Which brings us actually to Furiosa. Yeah, they are working. Well, actually, not working. Not working on. They have started shooting the Furiosa prequel, the prequel to Mad Max Fury Road, with Anya Taylor Joy as Furiosa. Now, again, not big on prequels. I I want to see what happens after the fact. Well, this is the, the the whole thing. Like we were introduced to Furiosa in Mad Max Fury Road. We kind of know her background already from being in the uh, in the environment yeah. that she was in in that story. I don't really need to see a prequel of a younger Furiosa because as much as I love Anya Taylor-Joy, I think she's a fabulous actress. I will watch her reading the phone book. As much as I'd like to see any movie that she's in, this was supposed to be Charlize Theron's deal. And you know what I would like to have seen? If they were going to go the prequel route, instead of just going a straight prequel... Have a movie with Charlize Theron as Furiosa, where she's dealing with something, and it shows flashbacks to her when she's younger with an Anya. Okay, Taylor yeah, I, I could de- I could see that. That would, that would be fine, but eh, you know what? It's it's being made by George Miller. It's going to look great no matter what. You know what? Yeah, and that that's kind of what is is keeping my interest in it because I love Mad Max Fury Road. No shade to Mel Gibson. It's the best Mad Max movie ever. It is. And it still holds up. I remember watching it with our friends, Chrissy and Tim, and watching this movie and going, oh my God, we're in the third act already? Because it felt like I'd only been watching it for half an hour. It grabs you and just keeps going. And it is a beautiful movie, too. It is so well shot. The cinematography in it is beyond anything I've ever really seen for an action film. It's a perfect movie. The performances are great. And my favorite thing ever, I don't care, I would have given it an Oscar just for that. My favorite thing in any movie ever is the dude with the guitar that shoots flames in the red pajamas on top of the trunk just belting out the music. And he's on bungee cords. And you, I, it is the most glorious thing you can ever see, no matter what your taste in movies is. This is cinematic gold, and we're still talking about it all these years later. And Aliens, as you can tell, John and I can gush about this movie forever, and we probably will on another episode. Moving on. Um, so, in the world of wrestling, if you are not aware of it, Vince McMahon has has done a naughty. He uh, he had a relationship, an affair, you might say, with a young uh, paralegal. Now that's not the technically the problem. The problem is is that he he did use company funds to give her more money than she was due, and that's the problem. He has stepped down as CEO and chairman of WWE, which is the first time he's done that in over ten. Well, he's been CEO and chairman for well over a decade. The last time he stepped down was back during the steroid trial to give you an idea on how heavy this is. And now Stephen McMahon is in as the interim CEO, chairman, all that stuff. Now, there is another problem as well. Investors are now looking into suing him. So he's not just getting investigated for this. He's being sued. And that is going to cause a huge problem 
one of his one of his uh, compatriots, John Laurinaitis, has been removed from the company because he was in on all this, and it's just a weird and I don't want to use the word exciting, but let's just say shocking time to be a wrestling fan. Well, Nick, let me um, let me try to let me try to condense this. My thoughts yeah. on this. So Vince McMahon, rich, entitled millionaire, best bosom chum of former POTUS and WWE Hall of Famer Donald J. Trump has done something sleazy and naughty. Color me surprised. John Williams is scoring the next Indiana Jones film. And it looks like that might be his last. Well, the man's got to be what? Like in his 80s? He's got to be in his 80s easily. He's been scoring since the 60s. And he has given us some of the richest scores ever. I mean, besides the popular ones, like Star Wars, Jaws, Indiana Jones. Things like... Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I yep. mean, he is the the sound of he, a Spielberg movie. He has created some of the most iconic music. Like, there, there is no way you hear Star Wars and don't know what it is. You don't hear Indiana Jones and don't know what it is. You don't hear Jaws. Jaws. The dawn on. You don't. You know exactly what that is when you hear it. Yeah. The man is a musical genius. He is an orchestral genius. And, you know... Every career has to come to an end, but I... It's uh, it's uh, it's bittersweet. It is. It's it bittersweet. Is. Because here's the thing. Will we ever hear a John Williams score again after this? Sounds like no. Are we going to be sad about that, or are we just going to be positive and thank him for all the decades of rich music movie scores that he has given us? Absolutely. And, you know, the really... I think Disney has actually been preparing for this. Because if you look at their TV shows, specifically the Star Wars one, they do have different composers coming in to do the music. And some of the music that they're doing is fantastic. I love that, uh, the, the the theme from The Mandalorian, where it's that do-do-do-do-do-do-do thing. It's, it's, it works just as well as any other Star Wars theme. The Mandalorian is, is at its core, a spaghetti western. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing is we'll see a lot of these TV, uh, the people composing for television for Star Wars take up the Star Wars movies when it comes to it. Yeah, I, I, let's hope so. Um, another thing I just want to quickly talk about, Nick, Netflix has laid off, that's their words, I mean, laid off is a fancy word for fire, Yeah. 300 employees, which to me is a shame in a way because uh, I just don't know where what the future of Netflix is right now. Well... There's the thing. When you just throw money at projects, just throw money, just make it rain all over oh, the projects. And when you cancel projects that are being lucrative, that are popular, just yeah. end them after, what, three, maybe four seasons if you're lucky? Yeah, like Netflix has, become, has kind of become the house that the Duffer Brothers built, but that is only worth as, so much money. Like, Stranger Things is hugely popular. Yeah. But I can't imagine it's recouping the billions of dollars that Netflix has spent on projects over well, the years. Well, look at The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Yeah. Chilling Adventures of Sabrina was basically getting its legs. It had its legs, but it was becoming very pop culture. There was a makeup line that was based on The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina for young women. And it drives me nuts that here is this 
this wonderful show that I was loving, you were liking, yep. everybody was liking it. If you were a horror fan, it was gold to you. If you were uh, a young woman looking for strong, empowered uh, characters, it had that. It was this rich, beautiful series that they said after the third one, when it's just really finding some solid legs, and they say, oh yeah, you're done. And they say, well, can we do a fourth season to wrap it up? And they said, sure, you can do a fourth season to wrap it up. And then that was the end of it. And what about Santa Clarita Diet? Santa like, Clarita Diet Santa... left on a cliffhanger. Yeah, like literally, my understanding from the story that uh, with the with the showrunner on that was that they were at a, they were at a meeting with Netflix. Everything was going well. They left the meeting and then got a call like an hour later saying, yeah, your show's been canceled. And it's like, why? Yeah, no, that, that that's exactly it, Nick. It was that's exactly what happened. They were in the meeting, everything was good. Yeah, we'll drop the contracts. Everything's going to be fine. Pulls into uh, his his home, starts making a sandwich. Yeah, you're done. No explanation. You're done. And Santa Clarita the Diet was a huge, huge binging success. Oh, it was a dark comedy. Oh, I uh, loved it. Was, it. it was Timothy Oliphant. Drew Barrymore. Uh, yeah, it was just a beautiful, and just a beautiful, funny series. One of my favorites, Nathan Fillion, just being as Nathan Fillion as possible. Yes, indeed. Aliens, we're here now for our main topic, and this, we're going to say it right now, is your spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Nick and I had the absolute privilege yesterday of having the movie theater to ourselves. Yep. We, we went to that sweet spot matinee that nobody goes to. We went at five o'clock to see the black phone. And oh my God, what a film. So in case you're wondering, the black phone is based on a story by Joe Hill. Some people are saying, who is Joe Hill? Let me let me explain. Joe Hill did not want to have his father's fame and influence, so he took the name of Joe Hill as an author. This is Stephen King's son. Why he chose to use the name Joe Hill is beyond me, because if you flip the cover and you see a photo of Joe Hill, you're seeing a photo of Stephen King circa 1972. Yeah, he legitimately looks like a clone of Stephen King gone horribly right. So, the, the beauty of it is this. Joe Hill has his own voice, but... You see in the dialogue that he creates, you see in the way that he writes, the influence of his father. Absolutely. You do. So when we were talking earlier about John Williams and that, that quote from Spock on Star Trek where nature abhors a vacuum, when Stephen King no longer writes, we will have Joe Hill. Yeah, yeah, we will. Um, so to go into it, I do, I I've seen a couple movies based on Joe Hill's books. I've never actually read any of his books though. Right. Uh, as where I've read a couple Stephen King books and seen a ton of the movies based on but his I books. But I think that works in our favor. I think I do too. I because do too. we could go into this without any expectation. Now, it's okay in something like the Harry Potter series where you may have read the books before because the movies don't spoil it. Because when I came into the Harry Potter series as an example, 
I saw the movies first. Yeah. Some of them. Some of them. They weren't all out. And then I started reading. So it didn't really spoil it that much for me. And the problem with reading a novel and then seeing it adapted into the screen is that it's never going to satisfy the reader 100% because they may have envisioned somebody else in the role. They may have left out a favorite part of the book. They may have edited it. They may have changed it because it's only based on it. So now, because of the black phone, seeing the movie first, I now want to go back and read the story. Yeah, I want to see what what differences, if any, because it's a short story, right? Right. I want to see what differences are there. But going into the film, I didn't really know what to expect. I knew there was going to be a certain um, paranormal aspect to it, but I didn't know where it was going to land. Right. Now, when we went into the film, I'm going to be honest with you, I really... When the film started, I really wasn't feeling it at the start of it. I was just like, okay, this is kind of looking like your typical crime drama. Yeah, and and you know what? I I get that because at the very start of it, it didn't feel like a good movie. The acting was... uh, Yeah, Yeah, it was was very... At the start. Yeah, at the start, yeah. But as the movie went along, and you you were watching me, I was I was literally on the edge of my seat. Oh, absolutely, a hundred percent on the edge of his seat. He was on the edge of his seat, leaning against the seat in front of him at different points of the movie. I was so into this film. Okay, let's go from the beginning. Now we have given our only criticism of this film, which is at the start. And again, we have child actors, so you're not really sure what's going to happen. Some of it's good. Some of it's not. Uh, yeah. But then it really starts to build because you wonder where this is kind of going. So the plot of it is very simple. In this community, children are disappearing. Not small children, but children of a certain age. Teenagers. Preteens. Yeah, that, about, that, yeah. that kind of middle school era. Yeah. They are disappearing and the and being killed. Yes. Assumed, uh, assumedly killed. Yeah. Assumedly killed. And they have dubbed this serial killer the Grabber. Which I have to say is a really cool name for a horror movie killer. The Grabber wears these masks. And I'm just going to make a point about the masks right now. They were created by makeup legend Tom Savini. Yep. Okay, so he wears these masks. He drives around in this black van. His calling card is the fact that these black balloons get released every time he basically kidnaps one of these these children. And it focuses on the lives of a brother and sister. As happens, eventually the brother gets kidnapped. Yeah. And the sister has these... I don't want to say psychic powers because they're not really psychic powers. She, she, she dreams. dreams. She, she dreams, dreams what's happening. And so... The, she's trying to figure out these dreams and she's hoping and praying, literally praying, literally praying, praying to Jesus that she can have a dream that will show her where her brother is yep. before um, he winds up dead. Yeah. The grabber is brilliantly played by Ethan Hawke. Honestly, this is easily one of my favorite Ethan Hawke roles ever. He is on in this movie. And it, it is simply amazing. It's chilling. Yeah. It, he's, it, this is one of the most chilling villains I've ever seen. This movie, horror fans, doesn't have a tremendous amount of gore in it. It doesn't have a tremendous amount of scare in it. But it is creepy. It, 
there there are a couple yeah, but... of jump scares, but but with that though, they're not just out of out of the thin air jump scares. They build up to it with the atmosphere and everything that's going on around this kid in the basement, uh Finny, um, in the basement. Like everything that's going on around him, all the atmosphere, when there is a jump scare, it feels very natural because that's the type of and film it it's is. It's a good jump scare. It's not the stupid cat jumping out. It's yeah. not the trope of the jump scare. It is a purposeful jump scare. Because it's built up. And because it's relevant to the story. Yeah, like it's not just these the, like at certain points you see ghost kids and they're not just showing up for no reason let me tell you something aliens this movie everything that happens in this movie happens for a reason that leads to the logical end of the film an emotional crescendo it is brilliant yeah and you know i'm, I'm gonna be honest i'm gonna be honest this did not break any new ground it's not a groundbreaking movie by any stretch of the imagination but the way that Joe Hill has written the script, the way it has been adapted, it feels fresh, it feels new. And it does have that feeling of Stranger Things because it is set in the 1970s. Yeah. And that, God, the score in this film was so good. But... Oh, I, I started to... You were singing along to I, it. Yeah, I, here's what happens. So they, they show this scene where there is this real tough kid uh, and he's playing a pinball machine, and I think it's a variety store. Mm-hmm. And he's playing this pinball machine, and Sweet's Fox on the Run is playing. This is a great song from that era. I started singing along, tapping my toes, because I was like, yes! Because I have not really heard that tune used in a movie before. Yeah. And I was waiting for that. I didn't know I was waiting for it, but I was waiting for that kind of a soundtrack in a movie. Don't you love it when that happens in a movie where you something happens that you don't know what you've been waiting for, but then it happens. It, feel, it feels like a, a scene where it's like, well, where have you been my whole life? It felt perfect. It felt like falling in love in a way, you yeah. know, where you're just like, oh, yes, this is, I, this is incredible. I want more of this. It, the movie itself was incredible. It was, and it did not commit the cardinal sin of it boring. It was not us. boring. It was not boring. It was a wonderful atmospheric movie that I want to see again because yeah. you missed things that I noticed, and this is why I want to go back and read the story because there's imagery all over it. I noticed it on the sister's shirt. I noticed it on the the pamphlets that were hung up. I noticed it, and, and it was part of the seventies. Um, where there was the imagery of these owls. Yeah. And that never, it was very subliminal, and it never seemed to come out in anything to do with the script. Yeah. So I would like to read the story to see if that has somehow got something to do with the story. Absolutely, absolutely. Then that, it's, As soon as it, was, as it was done, I wanted to see it again. I, I, I can't remember the last time I came out of the theater and wanted to be like, and was like, oh my God, I need to see this now again. I know. It's, just, it's almost like we wanted to be three-year-olds and turn to the, the projectionist and go, again, again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh man, it was so good. But I, I think brilliant. what made it good though, because I, I mean, I was sort of criticizing the kids acting earlier on, but the kids acting got much better yeah. as as it went along. So I don't know what happened in that first little bit. 
it may have been now Scott Derrickson directed this. Scott Scott Derrickson is a fantastic director. He's done Sinister. He did the first Doctor Strange movie. He's no slouch. It may have been a purposeful choice on on his end because they're kids. They they they're not. And a lot of times in kids movies or movies that revolve around kids, they should say they are more hope like they do come off very kid like because they're kids no they come off no i'm gonna correct you they they i would accept them coming off kid like they come off as bad actors that's, okay that's all the right. problem all right fair enough fair enough uh because we have seen good child performers we mentioned drew barrymore earlier yeah. on yeah you know she was a fantastic child performer um so i i don't know what happened there what i think may have happened. Now, let me hypothesize. We're very quick to blame directors when it could be the editor's fault. No, that's true. You know, because they choose the best sort of scene. And they do it with the directors, of course. So mm-hmm. they choose maybe the best. And, you know, movies are not like plays where they you have to have that energy from the start to the finish because you're in front of a live audience. Yeah, that's true. They shoot plays or sorry, they shoot movies out of sequence. Yeah. So we don't know what was happening necessarily that day. Yeah, that's true. That's a hundred percent true. But once the movie gets into once the inciting incident happens, everything is on par with some of the best performances I've ever seen. Yeah. And it's got this wonderful suspense. And Mason Thames, who plays Finney, and Madeline McGraw, who plays his sister Gwen are really spectacular in this film as far as child actors go. You see his frustration. And I was starting to have a little bit of disbelief in it where he's uh, very clever, of course. He's a precocious 13-year-old. Most 13-year-olds are precocious and clever. And I was sitting there thinking there's something a little disingenuous about the story and the fact that thinking back to myself at 13, if I was in this situation... I would be curled up in the corner, crying my eyes out, and then they deliver that. Yeah. And, yeah. So, I love the sister. She she herself is very precocious, and she's, uh, she's a bit mealy-mouthed as well at certain oh, points, my, and it's you, hilarious. Listen, you know, the, the I laughed at it. I, I, I'm not saying this, and I, I told this to my mother, so this just cracked me up. It's not really out of blasphemy. I explained how she prays to Jesus. She opens up her dollhouse. She takes out those old Gideon Bibles, those little proverb Bibles that were given to us as kids in that era. Yeah. Uh, through the schools, everyone had them. I don't know what deal they made, but anyway, they had them. So she pulls out one of those, she pulls out a picture of Mary. She pulls out uh, a, a crucifix. Yeah, there's a rosary And she's got one of those Christian fishes that spells Jesus. And she lays them all out like... Like yeah, a bingo lady. She's created She's created her own little altar in yeah, her room. Yeah, laid out like a bingo lady with these lucky charms, and she is praying fervently so that she can help her brother. And she doesn't get the prayer. So this is the point that I'm getting at. I loved this 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 line. I loved it. Even though it, it has, even though it's, it's somewhat blasphemous, it's not really, but it somewhat is, and it, as an F-bomb, and she sits there, and she lays it all out, and she opens it up, and she goes, what the F, Jesus? Oh, my God, that was so Because funny. her prayer isn't being answered. And yeah. honestly, it's marvelous to see something like that in a movie, 
because how many times have we as individuals gone through that struggling with our faith? And the neat thing about the movie is that there is, a, despite the fact this is a movie about a kid getting kidnapped and about to be killed, there's some really good instances of gravity in this film. There's some really funny aspects here, really funny moments. Max is hilarious for the short time he's in the film. Uh, Max is, turns out to be the killer's brother and he's a cokehead and the cops come to his door and he's And he's out. an armchair detective trying to figure out who the grabber is and where the grabber is. It's like, you're living with him, pal. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, he's not I mean, he's not really good at it, but he's, at least he's trying. But, he but gets the, points but, for trying. But even the acting, that comedic turn, that acting is brilliant because there's that moment where he puts two and two together. Yes. And you see it come wash over his face and he doesn't want to believe it. And getting back to Ethan Hawke for a minute, as an actor myself, I find that this performance is brilliant because we never see his face. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's the thing is, like, the, the mask is has two compartments. Well, the mask seems to have one main compartment that goes across the yeah, nose. Shall we say the grimace part? Yeah. But there is a part, he can remove the top of it and he can remove the bottom of it. And he, he throughout the movie, he replaces the top and bottom with different mask parts. You see one with a big grimace you see it with a smile um you see it with uh, you see the top part just with devil horns you and, see and without it with anger yeah it's and, so amazing and i loved that that moment where he sits there and he says what this face and that's the thing like ethan hawk is behind a mask for this entire movie and working working with a mask can be very difficult like if you look at how um the Mandalorian's done. We very rarely see his face, and a lot of his emotion is done through his voice. But Ethan Hawke in this movie is a lot of it is his hand gestures. His hand gestures really make up the personality because he's doing these gestures that look kind of otherworldly. At yeah, points. and it's the tone that he uses. It's the 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 vocal ranges. Yeah, that he the way chooses. his voice voice can change from sentence to sentence. It's how he ha handles his body. It's it's a beautiful performance to me, deserving of an Oscar. Nomination. I agree with that completely. Completely um, agree with that. Yeah, and and what is brilliant about this movie, of course, is like he soundproofed the basement. He explains all this. The exposition is there. It doesn't feel terrible, and. What is brilliant about it is that you have that moment where you realize that this is the Minotaur's labyrinth. Yes. You know, and it is getting into that whole Greek mythology and getting back to the idea of Greek theater where they did use masks and wear masks. Very much like that mask. So, I mean, it's it's all it's very richly layered. Yeah. We haven't even talked about some of the other things, which I would love to, again, I want to go back and read the story by Joe Hill, because the father is, the father of the kids is abusive. Yes. Quote, unquote. Let me tell you something. Growing up in the 70s, that was not abnormal. But in today's world, it's very shocking. It is. It is. And... Jeremy Davies, uh, who I knew from Lost, I thought he was really good in this performance, especially once Finney goes missing. Yeah, and but this is this is sort of where I think that there was a problem with the adaptation. I want to go back and read the story, as I've said about three or four times now, because 
there is this subtext of systemic abuse because I know from being raised by my parents and being an older gentleman that they were not as hard on me as their parents were on them. Not yeah. that my grandparents that I knew, my my mother's grand my mother's parents, they were very loving and kind. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, but I know that my dad's parents were very strict. Very strict. And I know that my parents were probably a lot more gentle with us yeah. than their parents were with them. Yeah. And so to see that moment where he's he's lost his wife. He's turned to alcohol to to cover it. He's trying to raise these two kids in basically a community that's kind of rough and tumble. Yeah, I got I kind of got that as yeah. well. And so we actually it's hard to forgive him because he's basically spanking with a belt uh poor little Gwen and she is screaming her she's head. terrified yeah she's screaming bloody murder and so it's it's difficult because we're watching a grown man do this to a young woman yeah uh you know a little girl and so it becomes very shocking and terrifying in that but at the same time there's that wonderful arc where Finney does go missing and this this very thing that he was afraid of in Gwenny, this this psychic power, if you will, that drove we find out later that drove the mother mad, and that's what he was afraid of. So his violence and his temper comes out of fear, which gets back into all those societal problems that we have of toxic masculinity, where we tell boys it's not okay to cry. Yeah. You know, so what happens in these situations is that men then become abusive if you will because they don't know how to channel yeah they don't the, know. the anger and the fear yeah and i think that's that's kind of the thing with toxic masculinity there, there there is no option to regulate your emotions it's just a case of don't bother yeah you don't get emotions yeah so when finney disappears he now we see that character arc in the father yeah where he has to rely on the very thing he was afraid of yeah and he has to go to his daughter and apologize and say i need you to use this yeah, you know, and that, that's kind of the thing is in a situation like that where the father is completely helpless, he does turn to the one thing that he is the most scared of. Yeah, and the ending of it is brilliant too, where he sees like the, beyond the police barriers, like those are my kids, and they let him through, and he comes up to them and he's hugging them, and he says, "I'm sorry." He's down on his knees. I'm so sorry, and. For everything, and he begs for their forgiveness. We do see that wonderful arc. So, and Jeremy Davies did it incredibly well. I bought it from start to finish. Yeah, it's just so richly layered. We're just sort of hitting the tip of the iceberg with this. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I don't like. There's so much that happened in this film that I don't think we could cover it in a no. And and the, the brilliant thing about the grabber is we never get a motivation. No, and we don't need it. No, we don't. And there's things that you can piece together, certain subtextual things, like the whole naughty boy game that he played. I guarantee you this guy was abused as a kid, but nothing's ever really brought up. And at the core of it, that's what the movie is. It's about systemic abuse from one generation to the next. Yeah, 100%. We could go on and on about the subtext of this movie, about the systemic abuse, about the fact that he's only... Uh, kidnapped boys because there's obviously something there that again pieces are missing from the story I feel 
but it doesn't detract from the movie. Yeah, I think a lot of stuff is being left uh, intentionally vague. Yeah, Just, to your intelligence, right? Yeah. It speaks to your intelligence. It is a smart movie. It is a very smart film. Yeah, um, I, I think that uh, I would give it a 9 out of 10 because it is not a perfect movie for some of the reasons that I've already stated. But also you remember when he brings down his dog. Yeah. And that dog is supposed to be really vicious. And I have a feeling in the story that dog is more vicious than is portrayed in the movie. I would probably think the same thing. Like, I would, like it's an imposing looking dog. It is. But... It wasn't snarly. It wasn't bark. It wasn't doing the things like say Cujo. Yeah. To keep it in the King family. I, I feel like there should have been something elsewhere in the movie where the dog came across as very violent and very scary. Yeah. And they just didn't do it. Yeah. And you know, but, but that's okay because again, the pacing of this movie is really, really quite good. Yeah. So Nick, what do you rate it? Oh, nine out of ten, easily. Yeah, it's a good movie. We highly recommend it to you, Aliens. And now we're going to recommend a few other movies to you because what has happened, it is now officially summer. It is. And so we've got a list of movies that we will recommend you to watch if you want a good giggle, if you want a good scare, whatever your pleasure, so that you can have a fun summer. And we're going to kick it off, Nick, with your number one pick. Jaws. Of course, Jaws. Of course it's Jaws. I love Jaws. You know me. I've loved Jaws since I was a kid. It's one of those movies. I like to watch all the movies together throughout the summer because it's just fun. Yeah, I mean, it's at the beach. You know, it's summer vacation. It's (laughs) the town is going to make all kinds of money, except Bruce came along and decided Bruce, to have a buffet. Bruce came along and decided the entire island was forfeit. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the movies that get... That kid re- and her kid looks delicious. <laughs> and the movies do get more ridiculous as they go along. Like, the shark eventually starts roaring in the last one, but whatever. Yeah, well, that's not Bruce. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, speaking of roaring, and I mean roaring with laughter, I'm going to go to a John Candy, Dan Aykroyd classic. The Great Outdoors. Funny, Ooh. one of the funniest comedies ever made about this family where the, 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 it's the two sisters and they have a cabin in the woods up here in Canada, I might add, and all kinds of hilarity ensues from bears to uh, men who uh, have a hundred birthdays and they croak on the way over to the oh celebration. My. To raccoons talking amongst themselves. It is just a funny, funny movie. I miss John Candy. So my next pick is one of my favorites from the early 2000s. Euro Trip. Where Scotty doesn't know. Oh, I love Scotty doesn't know. I love the Euro Trip. I have rewatched this movie so many times throughout the years. It is so funny. And it never... For me, it never ceases to be funny. And what a simple premise, too. I mean, this guy's got this girlfriend who turns out to be a great big hoe who's sleeping with Scott, who's sleeping with the Scott band member played by Matt Damon and singing and just sit there at the in front of the whole school at the graduation party. And hear the the tune Scotty doesn't know an entire song about how his girlfriend is a hoe. <laughs> and he's just sitting there, and the the look on his he's, face. He's just dead inside and then, for the entire song. And then you know he's got this dalliance with this gal from Germany, whose name turns out to be Mike. And he's like, oh my god, it's a dude. So he brushes that off, sends her this scathing email. And it turns out she's Mika. Yeah, and it, his little brother points that out that he's such an idiot. 
And so now the plot revolves around them getting to Mika before the the email does because she's not going to see it because she's away somewhere. Yeah. It is honestly one of the funniest teen comedies I've ever seen. The running gags throughout are amazing. Scotty doesn't know it's just one long running gag. It is so, so funny. And speaking of one gag movies that uh, are, are hilarious, yes, it's a blast from the past. Good old Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo and National Lampoon's Vacation, where all this father wants to do is take his kids to an amusement park. Wally World! He wants to give them the best vacation he possibly can, and everything goes wrong. And, yeah, like, I, I like the first... Uh, okay, so... Out of all the vacation films, the first one and Christmas Vacation are the ones that I like the most. The first one, everybody's been through that, and every dad goes through that. Just trying to just trying to give their kids the best thing that they can give them. You yeah, know? and you know the the reboot or the homage movie called Vacation that came out uh, not that long ago, I thought was brilliant because the, the, this one says uh, I've never even heard of the original vacation and so that's okay this vacation will stand on its own <laughs> and it does and speaking of chris hemsworth he's, he, in, it, he's he? in there right he's playing the, the sister's husband and it's this hilarious scene where he comes in and he's basically showing off his junk it, you don't see it but you see it and the outline of his pants and they are completely oblivious to him showing off his junk it is hilarious oh that's too funny vulgar but hilarious funny. So now, now I'm going to cross over into sci-fi, which is kind of an interesting thing for summer movies. We got The Last Starfighter. Now, The Last Starfighter stars Lance Guest as a uh, teen that's just graduated high school. And he's trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life during the summer. And he's playing this arcade game called The Last Starfighter. And he, he gets the top score and is then recruited into an intergalactic war. It is pure fantasy. It is so funny at points. And the characters and the character design are just brilliant in it. It's also the it's also one of the first films to have fully CGI scenes. Like fully CGI scenes. Like it's not great. It's not great CGI, but it's there. And it's really a neat film. And it's a really little foot uh, really neat little footnote but in you know, some film of the, history. Some of the eighties uh, special effects are kind of cool. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. It, the, yeah, the CGI doesn't look good, but it does give the movie kind of a retro feel. Yeah. Well, it should. Yeah. It should. And it felt very modern at the time when it came out, but I have not seen that in a long time. Oh, I'm pretty sure I have it, so I'm going to have to, to watch that. I have it on Blu-ray. I love that film so much. Uh, so I'm going to stick with Chevy Chase for a little bit. Uh, and but I'm gonna throw Bill Murray into the mix with Caddyshack. Oh, who doesn't love Caddyshack? I mean, golf is the is the summer sport, yeah. right? And just just to have that in there with that stupid gopher and Bill Murray trying to get that gopher. The the pool scene is still one of my favorite oh, scenes of all time. Yeah, that is so they, funny. They, they think somebody's left a floater in the pool. Yeah, you yeah. can't go wrong. I mean, this this will just give you a laugh. A and minute. what? And what a cast. Yeah. What a brilliant cast. You've got Chevy Chase. You've got Bill Murray. Uh, you've got Rodney Dangerfield. Like Ted Knight. Ted Knight. Yeah. yeah. Like it's such a good cast. It's full of just some of the best comedians of the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And I'm going to go off on my list here. I'm going to end my list with another comedy. 
whether it's a good one or not, that's up to you. Ernest Goes to Camp. Now, I love the Ernest films because they're just funny. They're irreverent and funny. And there's literally an Ernest film for every season. Uh, you got Ernest Goes to Camp. You've got Ernest Scared Stupid. And you've got Ernest uh, Saves Christmas. Ernest Goes to Camp involves Ernest going to summer camp. And uh, he takes a group of boys under the wing, under his wing. And he tries to get them their, uh, their, their badges and stuff. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, Jim Varney is always so funny in this role. A role that I recently found out, as we're going to be talking, as we're talking about pop culture overall, actually originated in advertisement. So he started he started Ernest P. Worrell as a as in his area. It was regional advertisements for different things, which is really neat. And then that sprawled out into the movies. And John, here's another little tidbit of uh, Jim Varney. Did you know that he was actually the, the man that played Ernest P. Worrell? is a Shakespearean trained actor. That doesn't surprise me, actually. Yeah, I've actually seen video of him uh, playing Hamlet. It's jarring, to be honest with you. Well, yeah, because here you've got an actor who has basically created a character that was created for commercials, Yeah, actually. And it it took off. Those commercials were so funny, uh, basically being a cable repairman or something like that. There was actually different commercials that he did with the Ernest character. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that character from those commercials became so popular, he got these string of movies from it. So, no, that doesn't surprise me that um, a lot of actors are classically trained. Oh, look at Shatner Hall, right? Speaking of things that are classic, my last pick on my list, and then we'll do an honorable mention, Stand By Me. Keeping it in the King family, this is based on Stephen King's short story, The Body. Again, premise simple, we're getting to the uh, Labor Day weekend. And one of these group of boys, played by Jerry O'Connell, River Phoenix, and Will Wheaton, say, hey, you want to go see a, a dead body? Yeah. And it's it's being reminisced by Richard Dreyfuss, one of the kids who's grown up. Yep. And Kiefer Sutherland is in it as, of course, the bully. So these kids just go on this camping excursion to find this body. And it's this wonderful coming-of-age movie that uh, it's the last dog days of summer before they go back to school. And basically perhaps go their separate ways yeah um i've seen I, i've seen stand i haven't seen it in a long time actually i watched it several times when i was a kid because it was it was always on movie picks when i was younger and i enjoyed watching that whenever it was on yeah um and see it was it was kind of a trip for me because the first time that i was exposed to jerry o'connell was in sliders and then seeing him as this fat little kid i'm like oh, that's kind of funny because <laughs> he's, he's tall and lanky. He's yeah, a tall, well, lanky dude. You know, I don't know if Jerry O'Connell put on the weight to play the kid or if he was a kid that had overweight issues. But, I mean, who cares? Yeah, Jerry he, O'Connell has, it was, it has was a, he's grown into one of those personality actors yeah. that we just love seeing him no matter what. He's like in Piranha, yeah. playing like the sleazy pornographer. I mean, he's great. Whether he, and he played Herman Munster in 1313 yeah, Mockingbird yeah, Lane. No matter what Jerry O'Connell does, I'm there for it. Yeah, right now he is voicing the first in command on Lord Dex on Star Trek, and I absolutely love him in that role. And that brings us to our honorable mention, and I say honorable mention not because it doesn't deserve to be on the list, because most assuredly it does. It's another Bill Murray flick called Meatballs, about a camp counselor who is not that much more mature than his charges, and hilarity ensues at summer camp. Hilarity ensues. Now, I 
I have uh, Meatballs another one that I haven't seen for a very long time. I saw Meatball when I Meatballs when I was a kid when I probably shouldn't have seen Meatballs, but yeah, I remember it being quite funny. Yeah, and you know, it's people don't even this is why is it called Meatballs? Well, Meatballs, you have to understand, Meatballs is a term from back in the day for somebody who was like basically a silly person. Like you couldn't call them, you know, a lot of things. So they just said, "Oh, you're a meatball." So that aliens is our suggestions for summer films and whatever you choose to watch this summer. I mean, go to a drive-in if there's one near you. See a blockbuster. Movies are really kind of meant for summer fun. Absolutely. And if you have any suggestions for summer movies for us, hit us up on Twitter at the area fifty one h. And also be sure to check us out on Instagram, also at the Area 51H, and TikTok at the Area 51H. Aliens, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Area 51 and a Half, where we discuss all things science fiction, fantasy, horror, and pop culture. This is Nick and John signing off and wishing you a great summer. Oh, that was a black phone. Oh man, black phone. Oh, he's so I good. I really hope people see this movie. Really